0: This is episode 210 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Cancer Drug Cardiotoxicity with Dr. Nazish Sayed. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. We have one last reminder for you all about the February 9th abstract submission deadline for the ISSCR 2022 Annual meeting taking place virtually and in person from June 15th to the 18th in San Francisco. There are travel and merit awards available for participating trainees, so make sure you check these out and get your abstracts in. Today we have Dr. Naziz Sayed from Stanford University He's on the podcast to talk about his research generating patient-specific vascular cells to investigate the effects of chemotherapeutic agents. We've also got our usual
1: roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming up. But first, did you know that you can model arrhythmias in cardiomyocytes derived from human-induced pluripotent stem cells? Watch Stem Cell's on-demand webinar to learn how patient-derived and gene-edited human pluripotent stem cell lines can be used to model cardiac disease in vitro. Visit www.stemcell.com cardio webinar to learn more. We're actually going to start off with not a paper, but a bit of medical news that has really caught the general public's attention as well as the field's attention. It's a stem cell adjacent story, uh, but it's related to topics that we've discussed a lot on the show, including animal human chimerism. Um, And this is the topic of xenotransplantation. It's nothing new. This is a concept that's been around for, for centuries now, right? The idea of taking animal tissues and putting them into humans for therapeutic purposes. And indeed, I mean, this is in some form has been happening for many decades now as an approved medical therapy. I mean, you think about pig valves being put into people, you know, routinely, that's nothing new, but this is, of course, taking it a, a huge step further. We're talking about whole organs, whole pig organs that have been transplanted into people. And in this situation, uh, uh, a a pig heart, a genetically modified pig heart that's been transplanted into a a 57 year old man from Baltimore, this is actually a team of surgeons at the University of Maryland School of Medicine that actually uh, did this, this transplant. And just to kind of give a little bit of background, this is a patient that was in really a dire situation, they had uh, an arrhythmia. So they weren't a candidate for heart transplants the heart transplant list they weren't a candidate for actually receiving an artificial heart right the individual actually was also non-compliant with certain immunosuppressive and other medications so again in the situation of a heart transplant this an individual and a patient has to be kind of a a, a really an exemplary individual and an exemplary citizen and unfortunately this individual did not qualify for for a human heart transplant so they decided to do an experimental procedure, right? This patient was definitely not in a good situation. They were likely going to pass away unless they actually tried something more experimental. And they, uh, these team of surgeons from Maryland and the, you know, the, this this group, they're actually working together with a company called Revivacore. And this company is well known for creating a, a unique pig, a genetically modified pig that had multiple genetic modifications to the heart and other tissues of the, the pig body, whereby it would be immunocompatible, right? So the thought is eventually you'd be able to transplant these pig organs into a person who might need the organ as a bridge, all right? I don't think this is going to be a permanent solution to this individual's, you know, heart problems. This is hopefully a bridge until a more suitable human heart is found as a, as a permanent replacement, right? So they conducted this surgery and it was, Successful. This individual is, of course, you know, under heavy immune suppression, but they are alive. You know, for, it's been a few weeks now since the transplant was conducted, and the it's really a, a medical milestone: the transplantation of a whole pig organ, a genetically modified pig heart, into a human recipient. And the question now is to see, you know, how long does this individual survive? And of course, again, I want to bring it back to the stem cell side of things. Why are we talking about this here? Because we've talked about xenotransplantation in other contexts, right? We've talked about human animal chimerism and maybe one day down the road, being able to create animals, pigs maybe, that have humanized organs based on complementation at the blastocyst and early developmental embryonic stages, right? This is different. This is, you know, obviously, uh, this is a, a genetic modification using CRISPR on uh on a custom set of pigs i don't think there's any sort of embryo complementation occurring here of course not Uh, no i don't think there's any sort of chimerism in that way this is just CRISPR at its finest to make genetically modified immunocompatible pigs but hey you know huge medical story huge news story um i've been thinking about xenotransplantation ever since my undergrad days and i had I, i had my mind was blown that this actually it happened right it happened yeah, this is a big deal. Uh, and we've been waiting
0: for this, but I mean, I I can speak for myself. I've been waiting for it, but I at the same time felt like it might never happen. Um, ever since we've been talking, like you said, about the interspecies chimerism with June Wu, I remember years ago, we covered that and, and similar stories about these pigs, actually. Um, but it was at the experimental phase, and now it's getting into patients. And, and you know, regarding the interspecies chimerism as a way to generate organs, I've always said that I was a little bit half-baked, right? Because organs are complex; they have a lot of different cell types, and the whole uh, organ complementation process, where they do like a, a interspecies chimera and like a Nkx two point five knockout mouse or pig, I guess, um, such that the the human cell, the contributing uh, cells, can contribute in in full to the heart. I think. The the major stumbling block there is like it's not just made of cardiomyocytes, right? The heart, there's vessels, there's all kinds of other cell types in there. So the idea that you'll get a human, a whole human organ uh, for transplant in a pig, um, I've always thought was a bit more far fetched than this approach, um, which here it's in play, it's working, and I think you know about a, a bit over a month ago, I think was the first demonstration that they could transplant these uh whatever it's called uh pig um kidneys uh robert montgomery at nyu langone did that and another group at uab has just recently done that so it seems like this is not just a one-off right it looks like we're on our way and and those studies were really there to to set the stage for clinical trials so it looks like you know wholesale we're moving into pig organ transplant as a as a new way of life The, the one question i have at this is why such a uh why the immunosuppression why do they have to go uh so so intensely with the immunosuppression i thought the whole premise here was that you had these organs that would be um invisible so to speak to the human immune system any any uh details on what the nature you know i, I remember with viacite right the the idea that you could uh, transplant even ips derived or, or immune privilege in these little cases even those were rejected because of like the inflammatory or they were encased in a kind of fibrotic scar which limited the ability of those insulin producing cells to function so i wonder if it's a similar mechanism here of rejection or potential mechanism that they have to guard against any ideas there
1: yeah i'm not entirely sure i mean you know it's a, it's a good comparison to the biocide situation. I, I think part of it is just, there's a lot we don't know when it comes to the particular immune engines that are being presented that need to be eliminated before you can get complete immunocompatibility, right? They, they only made 10 genetic modifications here. Maybe that's enough when it comes to knocking out the, the pig alpha gal and different, uh, sugars on the, the surface of the, the, the heart or whatever but I'm sure there's a lot of other components that are missing. I mean, think about it. You have an, a huge bolus, right? A massive organ, a foreign object that's being put into a human thorax, right? You know, it's it's different. It's It's not recognized by the body. And I'm sure there's more than just these 10 modifications that have to happen for long-term survival. But that is, I think, hopefully down the road. Ultimately, the goal is long-term survival of these things, so that we can mass produce organs for human transplantation and that black market of current, uh, the current black mark market of human organs is hopefully going to be alleviated. I don't know. That's It's a long-term vision.
0: Yes, uh, agree 100%. I mean, we we should be reminded, uh, typical heart transplant, that's not an immune match either. So, uh, you know, going right all the way with the off-the-shelf organs may be a lot to ask. Um but here i guess we're we're, we're setting the stage and I, you know the numbers better than i but x thousand people die on the transplant list every day right or some 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 like that so this is a, an amazing step forward in providing a stopgap for those patients until they can get human organs uh so yes a big step forward very exciting time to be a transplant surgeon get you some of those revivicor pigs um also an exciting time to be a you know stem cell biologist period and in terms of the insight that we're gleaning into just our existence the things that that make us different as humans the thing that make us different from primates you know this is a Madeline lancaster story so i'm i'm going down that line she just had a big story in uh nature uh just a couple days ago that was using brain organoids you know in the past she'd used them for the evo devo studies she took organoids from primates versus humans, gorillas, chimps, and humans, and, and kind of uh, zeroed in on the, the the differences evolutionarily that account for our increased brain size. Here, uh, Lancaster, and also co-corresponding here is uh, Eva Kalava, who I'm guessing is a, a member of the lab there at the MRC in Cambridge in, in Madeline's lab. Um, and this was a similarly ambitious goal. And I love how Madeline's group does this, is they ask really big questions um, using these stem cell models. You know, Most people are focused on the regenerative potential, but she's just trying to understand things. Um, and in this case, it's a bit controversial. She's trying to understand sex-based, gender-based differences uh, in the human brain. Okay, and, and this is, as I said, very controversial. But as she said eloquently in her intro, if you if you ignore uh the existence of the differences there's a major detriment there right because you know there are differences and they may relate to the emergence of disease they may relate to the treatment uh, developing effective drugs or understanding toxicity um and male and female brains are just different fundamentally right we all know that mars venus trope but um really anatomically they they're also are different, and there's different susceptibility to neurological conditions amongst men and women. For example, autism spectrum disorder, schizophrenia, are uh, significantly enriched in males relative to females um and that's probably due to and there's a lot of evidence suggesting it's due to differences in brain structure which there are also it's been well established that male uh, brains are i'm loath to say here larger than feeling careful, not, <laughs> careful. Not, not that there's anything to that um you know bigger isn't better and i think i think i can i can say that firsthand my brain is inferior to my dear spouse um <laughs> i hope she's listening um, but yes, I mean, the differences are real in uh, morphological. Also, let's be honest, behavioral differences, they are real. Um, and as I said, males uh, average larger brain volume, um, average increased neural density, increased gray matter in several bra- bra- uh, brain regions. Um, and this isn't present, you know, this doesn't come about. It's present at, at in neonates. Um, even when you control for you know gestational size, there's a, a difference in brain size. and that suggests that the origin there is developmental, right? This is ha- something that happens in embryogenesis. So the question that the Lancaster group asked is, how does this work? How does it happen? Is the uh, embryological uh, emergence of these differences, um, what better model than brain organoids? And what they asked really is is an obvious candidate, right? is circulating hormones. the the at a very early stage the the brain is influenced by androgens um in the male case and uh as a counterpoint to that uh, lancaster's group they looked at a cell intrinsic so they went to see if it was extrinsic or intrinsic they took xx and xy lines um the ips lines made organoids from those Uh, and what they found is that all things being equal the xx xy lines didn't behave differently. So it suggests that the intrinsic difference in the sex chromosomes is not uh, underlying the differential behavior of the of the cells in in the brain and and in these organoids. Um, But then, of course, when they expose them to androgens, and this is key because they expose them to testosterone, which can be reduced to the, the androgen testosterone, which can be reduced to the female reproductive or predominantly female reproductive hormone estradiol as well as dihydrotestosterone which can't be reduced Um, and what they found effectively is that those androgens and not the estradiol did elicit a difference Um, and that difference was very specific there was increased proliferation of cortical progenitors an increased uh, pool of neurogenic cells um, and and specifically uh, that uh, increase was in the output of these ex- excitatory neuronal progenitors, and there wasn't a change in the inhibitory neural progenitors. So right out of the gate, this is suggesting that there's there's maybe a, a functional difference, a enrichment of these excitatory neural progenitors, um, because you know there is evidence clinically, it's been shown that uh, androgens uh, uh, ha- that... That oh sorry that autism spectrum disorder and schizophrenia um, may be that there's evidence suggesting that it's due to an imbalance in the ratio of excitatory to inhibitory neurons. So that was really nice affirmation of a clinical uh, phenotype there in their study. Um, and then they go to the next level there, uh, looking at mechanism. Finally, showing that uh, it, it is uh, affects of uh, histone deacetylases and mTOR signaling and this also has a tie-in with the clinic uh, because this hdac histone histone deacetylase and mTOR activity has also been linked to autism spectrum and and schizophrenia so this uh, for me i love this study just because it, it offers a window into neural development that is not possible without organoids and and unlike what you might expect, you know, how can you uh, deconstruct a kind of neuropathology um based on something so simple as a, a organoid, you know, I'm not gonna call it a brain in a dish because that's fallen into the trap, but it, it kind of suggests that these organoids, it, it, I guess it underscores the power of these organoids in um, digging down into some of these molecular phenotypes. And in this case, I think maybe even identifies uh, some underlying causes, perhaps, of some serious neuropathology that's highly prevalent. ASD and schizophrenia are a big deal, and we don't really have a good answer for those.
1: Yeah, I think this is a great story and another great story coming out of the Lancaster Lab, who's been on, obviously on fire recently. Um, in addition to looking at the kind of the sex-based differences here, the other part of this I really liked was the, the evo-devo aspect. I think you touched on it briefly but you know they they did some mouse organoid assays as well and they actually showed that there's no effect of this dht uh, whereas estrogen actually led to some increased basal progenitors and cellular phenotypes so this also shows that there are definitely if you know evolutionary differences in sex-based differences too right even though the mouse is certainly a another mammal um but some of these. Phenotypes and findings may not translate from one mammal species to another. So I'd also be interested in looking at kind of a broader range of organoids across different species to see if some of these findings hold up. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that that is another great takeaway from this. Because you know
0: that's the mechanism in mouse is the virilization of the masculine brain is from. Uh, testosterone being reduced to estradiol. So counterintuitively, it's that female "quote unquote" reproductive hormone estradiol that's leading to the virilization of the male brain. But absolutely not the case in the human. And as you said, this is another uh, another piece of, of data showing how different uh, mouse and human is, which we knew. But all those people that have been using mouse as a model to understand sex differences now have to go back to the drawing board. Um, and maybe consider uh, getting some organoids and they're stable to, to get better answers.
1: There you go. It's the power of IPSCs, human models, human systems. Um, you know, we're talking about uh, induced pluripotent stem cells, of course. And the next paper I'm going to talk about is also an IPS paper. It's using human IPSCs to actually model something that I, at least I haven't heard of. Yeah, it's kind of surprising that this hasn't been done. Maybe I just don't know as much about this particular field, but it's modeling albinism, right? The loss of pigment in the skin and the eyes of certain individuals. This is a genetic variant a genetic mutation. It's in vitro disease modeling of oculocutaneous albinism type uh, 1 and 2 using human iPSC-derived RPEs. Those are retinal pigment epithelial cells, right? And just to give a little bit of background, uh, this is oculocutaneous albin- albinism. Uh, again, coming, this sorry, this is coming from the lab of Brian Brooks over at the NIH. Uh, first author is Amon George. But yeah, OCA, oculocutaneous albinism, is a set of autosomal recessive genetic conditions that we've all kind of seen and heard of, right? Where you have depigmentation or re- reduced pigmentation in this, the eye, the skin, the hair. These individuals have uh, certain genetic propensities to actually develop other uh, diseases as well. They, the OCA patients actually have a, a pretty reduced visual acuity. So sometimes their eyesight is actually negatively impaired. Uh, and the visual phenotype of albinism is of course, the loss of pigmentation and you have abnormalities in the phobia development, different portions of the eye, uh, different, uh, irregular formations of the optic nerve as well. And so one thought is maybe if you improve pigmentation, eye pigmentation, you could prevent, or maybe even rescue some of these vision defects that are found in these individuals with OCA, right? Oculocutaneous albinism. So this is actually a a pretty straightforward study in my opinion. This is an IPS model basically deriving IPSCs from people who actually have OCA, two different versions of OCA. So they are disease in a dish models for um, OCA type one and type two. They derived the IPSCs from these individuals and then differentiated into RPEs, or retinal pigment epithelial cells. It's a monolayer of cells that are pigmented, polarized, and polygonal in shape. The important thing, one of the important things is morphologically, the IPS-derived cells, RPE cells from the individuals who had OCA, morphologically were not that different from wild type. But when it came to the actual pigment formation, uh, that's where the defect as you might expect showed up right so they uh, were able to show that these things are much less pigmented in a dish so you can recapitulate that disease phenotype in a dish which is really neat so and they dove a little bit into the mechanism as to how that happens but i think ultimately they want to perhaps use this as a downstream Model system to perhaps screen for compounds, maybe able to alleviate or restore some of that melanation in these IPS derived RPEs, maybe down the road finding some sort of treatment for this uh, particular disorder. So, a relatively straightforward study in stem cell reports, um, but I like it. It's, I don't think, something that I've seen before, uh, something a little bit more unique when it comes to disease models, which are, of course, there's a lot of disease models out there. Yeah, this is this
0: threw me for a bit of a loop, unexpected. and yeah of course the question is why why are you doing this uh but you said it it's to to model this disease maybe figure out i don't know maybe you could get ips from these patients uh, rescue the defects somehow restore the melanation as you said and then get them in there i mean rpe that's the one of the top candidates right for regenerative therapies. one of the the only ones that's gotten into human trials and shown some efficacy so it's not that far-fetched um and you know just in terms of the insight and interest, it's enough for me with these stories like I uh, just to just to have someone have done it. There's there's another story like this that I, that is a little bit more, I think, um, uh, a little deeper dive, uh, looking at vitiligo from Ting, Ting Chen, um, who we've had on the show and we covered another paper, of hers, that's why we, we didn't cover that one, but it, it's these types of stories, I think, that get at uh, the you know, what, what more apparent phenotype is there than albinism and, and, and vitiligo? So I like, I like these types of stories. I guess, I don't I didn't read this uh, fully, but I wonder if they could have done some kind of rescue here to really underscore that maybe therapeutic aspect of it, but maybe that, that wasn't really within the scope of the, the study. I'm not sure about that. What do you say?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the downstream next step is to actually do the genetic correction of the particular genes that are actually causing these phenotypes. And actually, it's a good point that you brought up when you talked about RPEs as kind of one of the uh, clinical avenues that is being pushed the furthest right now in the stem cell field. Another thing to think about is is gene therapy, like, you know, CRISPR mediated correction of some of these phenotypes, right? That's actually a huge area of interest for certain companies out there that are using CRISPR to uh, correct different genetic disorders. And actually, if I remember correctly, Editas, which is one of the initial companies that's really pioneering CRISPR-based gene therapy, uh, they're actually targeting the eye. That's one of their initial indications and initial Uh, areas of focus is actually to target the eye for CRISPR-based therapy. So yeah, I think there's a a lot of downstream applications for not only this kind of work, but all sorts of corrective therapeutic work in in the eye, right?
0: Yeah, speaking of therapies, you know, I'm, I'm pivoting here to a story that is representative of the first gold standard stem cell therapy that is super widely used and effective. Of course, I'm talking about hematopoietic stem cell transplantation cord blood transplantation it's something that's so ubiquitous now that we take it for granted um, and the reason is because there's a lot of hematological malignancy out there you know it, the the prevalence of blood diseases of the blood cancers of the blood is very high and uh there's a seemingly endless diversity of different manifestations of that disease and that's because hematopoietic cells they divide like gangbusters you know like a billion a day or something like that I'm, I'm way off with the numbers on this episode i'm just throwing it out there it's a big number and with all those divisions you get a potential for a mutation right and hematopoietic stem cells and progenitors they can acquire very specific mutations that confer a competitive advantage right most of the mutations are kind of you know do nothing they're in some maybe non read uh, region of the genome but there's some uh mutations that show up um at higher prevalence in the hematopoietic pool because they give an advantage and um those clones are called uh that that process is called clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential uh abbreviated as chip um and amongst those clones, the most common mutations that you'll find are mutations in DNMT3A and TET2. All right, and those mutations in those are are in those genes are also uh, evident and prevalent in myel- myelodysplastic syndrome, uh, acute myeloid leukemia, and other myeloproliferative neoplasms. Um, and not to mention, if you see these mutations, um, even if you if you don't have a hematological malignancy, if you find those clones in a patient, it's a really high, uh, it really increases their risk for developing subsequent hematological malignancies, right? Also in mice, you knock out either of those genes, TET2 or DNMT3A, and you get that same phenotype, a competitive advantage, um, and then they become susceptible to hematological malignancy, but the the occurrence of leukemia, just outright leukemia, it's it's low frequency in the mice in these controlled systems. So clearly, the TET2 DNMT3A is not enough on its own, and you need these additional alterations in the genome in order to result in malignant transformation. But what those additional changes are, it, it remains pretty much unknown. You know, a few things have been pulled out, but for the most part, we don't know what is tipping these things off the ledge. Um, so that leads us to uh, work from, uh, led by Daniel Star- Starsanowski, I don't know that name, but someone helped me, Star- Starsanowski, um, I apologize, Daniel, uh, from Cincinnati Children's, as well as Ionis Ifontis, I got that one, that's not so easy, he's from NYU School of Medicine. Um, and what they did is they, they used an in vivo RNAi screen, loss of function screen, to see what you know, what other uh, modulators, what other gene targets would need to be lost in this case in order to promote um, development of these malignancies? Uh, and what they found is that there was a downregulation of these innate immune modulators um, that led to tipping over into the full uh, malignancy. Um, and it, it was unexpected, it was uh, toll like receptors, um, which are involved in a- innate immunity. Um, and in the pa- in the past, uh, immune pathway activation in hematopoietic stem cells has been linked to leukemic transformation, um, even without any infection. So there is a, a kind of precedent for these immuno- immunomodulatory uh, factors playing a role in transformation, but it hasn't really been defined how that works. So in this case, they went after the mechanism there, and what they found was the most prominent of these toll-like receptors. Uh, that was that was enriched in these screens was uh, TRAF6, which is a ubiquitin ligase. And so they targeted that in these pre-leukemic cells that they generated in the mouse model. And they found that indeed, that did tip them over into overt myeloid leukemia. Um, and then they went mechanistically drill down to show that uh, it was uh, related to MYC signaling, right? Then they also showed that this is uh, also present in patients, um, that TRAF-6 is repressed in some patients that have myeloid malignancies. Uh, And they showed that the the mechanism, the way that TRAF uh, regulates MYC, it's not that it ubiquitinates because it's a ubiquitin ligase. It doesn't ubiquitinate MYC and lead to its degradation. What it does is it leads to the repression of its function. Um, by uh, antagonizing this acetylation that's present on the protein. So um, I, I think a nice, I love studies that, that come with an open question, a nice screen, identify a target, and then figure out what it's doing. It's like kind of soup to nuts here in this study. And also really important because there's a huge population of people that have this chip, you know, colonial hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. And we don't really know what to look out for. We just know to watch them. For the emergence of these myeloma malignancies, so um, our hematological malignancy. So, here we have a, a specific target that we can look for, see if there's down regulation in the patient that they might be on the cusp of this transformation, and maybe even therapeutically to target it to try and uh, recover some trap function. Although, I, I don't know how that would work. In the broad suite of hematopoietic clones that are present in the body, but at least we have a target, a rune, and I think that's what's exciting here: is that you always want to know what to be looking for. We've crossed off another one of unknown unknowns. Now we, we got something to look out for.
1: Yeah, I like this study too because it's you know very mechanistically focused, looking at this interaction between TRAF6 and TET2. Although I will say, you know, it's it's a great connection there. be cool to also look at the interaction between traf6 and other chip mutations too i think they actually specifically look at that and if you're talking about toll-like receptor which is actually very it's a very powerful set of signaling uh, pathways and molecules you know traf6 it's not only implicated in in um, hematol in blood cancers as well you know you got to look at other cancers too so you it's probably a good idea to actually look at TRAF-6 function across the board and other types of cancers, you know, as well. That's just my two cents. I
0: agree. I agree. I mean, ubiquitin ligase, right? So there's plenty of targets out there that this could be, um, you know, affecting. And in, in in this case, you can see it's the down regulation um, of, of TRAF that, that is influencing it and leading to this, um, you know, MIC running out of control leading to cancer, so you can imagine, as you said, with MIC being pretty much ubiquitous in in the field of oncology you gotta keep your eye out for other cancers. so I agree with that 100%. We're about to talk to someone who's a cancer survivor also solving problems in stem cells, so we can maybe get to that with him, Um, but before we do, I have a quick message from stem cell technologies. Do you work with skeletal muscle progenitor cells? The stem cell technologies human myocult workflow supports your muscle research from start to finish, allowing you to derive, expand, and differentiate human skeletal muscle progenitors. You can also expand mouse myogenic progenitors using the mouse myocult expansion medium. Learn more at www.stemcell.com myocult all right everybody on today's episode we have with us dr nazis sayed who's assistant professor of surgery at the stanford cardiovascular institute the sayed laboratory is focused on the development of novel technologies that drive innovation in regenerative medicine disease modeling and drug testing in vascular biology the team uses ipscs to generate patient-specific vascular cells which they use for scalable and sustainable research and to investigate the effects of chemotherapeutic agents. Work from the lab has led to seminal discoveries in the areas of nitric oxide biology, vascular biology, stem cell biology, cardiovascular disease modeling, and cardio-oncology. Dr. Sayed, thank you so much for joining us on the show today.
2: Well, thank you so much, really. It's a great opportunity to be here. Uh, thanks for the invitation.
1: Yeah, thanks for being here, Nazish. And you're, of course, a a mentor of mine from Stanford Cardiovascular Institute. So it's always great to catch up with you. And in fact, you're a new PI at the Stanford CBI as well, the Cardiovascular Institute. After working as a postdoc and instructor under the the one and only Joe Wu, who is both of our mentors, really, is my PhD advisor, too. Um, You've had a meteoric rise as of late. You actually just got your second R01, I believe. Congrats on that. And like I said, very proud to call you one of my mentors, too. You're an expert in all things related to cardiovascular drug toxicity, cardio-oncology, is this cool new field at the intersection of cardiology and oncology. Specifically, you've really focused on the vasculature and the way that these cancer drugs may be able to impact the endothelial cells in the vasculature. So I wanted to start off a little bit broad and kind of remind folks why cardiotoxicity and cardio-oncology is such an important area to study these days. And talk a little bit also about kind of the growth of that field cardio-oncology and the intersection of the heart and cancer fields.
2: Uh, Thanks, Arun. Uh, First, congrats, Arun, for your new lab. Uh, It's so (laughs) really good to see you uh, spreading your wings. You absolutely deserve it. Uh, Dalen. again, thanks again for the invitation. So, you know, to talk about uh, cardio-oncology. So, you know, we, you know, uh, the field of oncology, uh, flourished when we came up with new chemotherapeutic agents uh, targeted, general, and they usually did an amazing job of curing cancer. I mean, we have an extended life uh, survival uh, for the uh, for the oncology field, cancer field. you know, but however, we by the late 70s we started to come to know that, you know there is the other side of uh, oncology, which is cardiovascular dysfunction, as more and more patients, were coming out, getting cured for cancer, but unfortunately started to show uh, symptoms and side effects of this uh, cancer therapeutics is the cardiovascular dysfunction. And that led to, in the 90s, maybe even in the 2000s, to start having this new field of cardio-oncology where there were cardiologists focusing specifically to deal with the side effects of uh, chemotherapeutic agents. One of the classic features was heart failure. I mean, you know, patients coming out in the 80s treated with cancer therapeutics were now having about a decade or two decades later heart failure without any comorbidities, no diabetes. And that led to the discovery that, you know, it is these chemotherapy agents. Example could be doxorubicin, which is an amazing drug for treating cancer. But then also other targeted chemotherapeutic agents, such as tyrosine kinase inhibitors, uh, Ratsasuma, which is an antibody, amazing drug, but still having uh, cardiovascular dysfunction. And that led to this discovery. I mean, so many amazing uh, cardiologists have now entered this field uh, to kind of investigate what we can do to prevent. See, we cannot stop cancer treatment, but can we do something to prevent the side effects of these uh, cancer drugs? So that's where cardio-oncology comes through.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I love uh, the idea of it. It's very close to my heart as well. I work in reproductive medicine, and of course I've been a stem cell biologist, but I, I've always noted that in, in terms of cancer treatment, and it's what I always lead with. We've gotten so good at saving lives, right, and particularly in a pediatric population, right, we've turned around the leukemia from, you know, maybe 90% mortality at early days to 90% survival, but not enough people are thinking about the rest of these people's lives, you know, it's not just a day after remission, but a whole long life. In the case of reproductive health, these are patients that go, it's, you know, they want to have a family, that's a full life for them, Um, and oftentimes the chemotherapy leaves them sterile. Um, So yes, this is a new chapter. I mean, through the benefit of all those decades of hard hard work and our war on cancer, that now we're able to ask this next question, right? What about the rest of your life? Um, And on that note, you know, a bit of a segue to some of your other work, you're really focused not just on embryonic uh, development and and IPS cells and cardiogenesis, um, but also on the other end of the developmental spectrum, right? You also, you published a nice story in Nature Aging that leverage gene expression, this broad, sweet analysis of uh, serum factors, cytokines, chemokines, growth factors, also deep learning, all to develop this inflammatory clock of aging. And, and this is part of, I think, a, a growing collection of stories that are really zeroing in on spe- specific molecular factors that underlie the aging process. And in this case, you showed that CXCL9 was the culprit and really amazingly, uh, from my perspective, seemed to be targetable, right? You were able to reverse uh, some of the phenotypes, specifically this endothelial uh, arterial stiffness type phenotype, even in mice, as well as human cells. So I think really exciting um, in terms of the prospects. So can you just, I think, I mean, uh, elaborate on that, would you please? Uh, Do you think that targeting of these factors um, can we get there, it kind of, quote-unquote, reverse aging? Is it a viable strategy? Can Is there a silver bullet like CXCL9 or other you know, groups, the wagers group, I think, is focused on GDFs? Um, mm-hmm. are there, uh, do we have to target all these as a group? Is there a silver bullet? Elaborate on that. What are the risks, challenges of, of trying to neutralize these factors in vivo? Can you just tell us a bit?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think this was an amazing, uh, I would say, collection of data which led us to this part. I mean, as you said, this is a collection of stories. (laughs) We had this trove of patients coming through, a thousand patients recruited in the study. And I'll I'll literally provide the gist for the study. This took five years of just this paper being uh, put into. So, you know, the idea for this study was to identify key factors which are responsible for diseased aging. I mean, we all are going to age and we all are eventually get to the point about why some individuals who are older are still healthy, free of cardiovascular uh, dysfunction, but some individuals who are much younger but still have cardiovascular dysfunction. And this disparity is something which led us to think about that there must be some underlying reason. Which leads to younger people having cardiovascular dysfunction, but on the other side, older individuals free of any cardiac dysfunction. So this led us to think about, you know, what could be the factor responsible. I mean, we all know aging is a multifactorial thing. It has nine pillars, of, you know, stem cell exhaustion to nutrition to all of those factors. We thought about thinking beyond those nine pillars and think about a common thing which we all go through every day: inflammation. I mean. We talk about acute inflammation or chronic inflammation. I mean, I can give you an example. Acute inflammation is I cut myself and I get an acute inflammation. The healing process is super fast. But what about this sterile inflammation which we are undergoing on a day to day basis, especially these days, you know, with other factors coming in, you know, exposure to climate change and pollution and, you know, different stresses which we go through, job stress, you know, come home and work stress. All of that thing makes it difficult to kind of tamper this down, this chronic inflammation. And what about this inflammation when it becomes long term? And that's what we wanted to target about that this is an underlying factor which could be causing. So we honed on to inflammation. The story was we collected a 1,000 patients. We ran a whole proteomic profiling of these 1,000 patients so we have enough power and then ran it through. A GAE method, which is the guided autoencoder of machine learning, to kind of let it spit out mm-hmm. many different chronic inflammatory markers, which could be present in the serum of these patients. These patients were from a nine-year-old kid to a 101-year-old individual uh, seeing the different factors. And long story short, what we found is that the I age, which is the inflammatory age, which we got through machine learning was correlative of their calendar age, except for a few outliners. And that's where we started to look into, we found some younger individual had inflammatory markers which were off the roof and should be representative of something of an older individual. But then we found some older individuals whose inflammatory age or these inflammatory markers were way low, and these two cohorts corresponded to the cardiovascular dysfunction. Hmm. You know, the question came down to is that what, what is the positive control? What we did is, we recruited about a dozen centenarians who are 100 plus from a village in Italy where the uh, you know the uh, the life expectancy is above 100, and those individuals had no cardiovascular dysfunction with an eye age representative of a 45 year old, mm. and that led us to think that you know our machine learning, our AI driven uh, hypothesis hypothesis is strong because then we can correlate not just the calendar age, the inflammatory age, but actually the cardiovascular dysfunction, the the clinical implications which come through. So your your question, uh, Dalen, is that do we have a silver bullet? You know, unfortunately from what we are seeing, we don't have a silver bullet. But I think if we can make aging more graceful, if we can make aging which we all are going to go through less cardiovascular or other function. I mean, I'm I'm focusing on the vascular component because that's my field of expertise. But what about neurological? You know, we know it's dementia, Alzheimer's is something which a lot of older individuals get. It cancer. I mean, you know, we know as we age. What about those? Can we really hone onto the inflammatory markers and at an early age start to look at this profiling? that you know inflammation as we age is gonna increase. Is there a a simple blood test which we can go through, maybe maybe not on a yearly basis, but maybe every two years to see, hey, my inflammation is high because you know I'm going through some kind of a stress in life. Is there any way I can change my lifestyle? Maybe start eating healthy, maybe start exercising to kind of hone down this inflammation on a lower level, that maybe we can make this aging process disease free or disease, you know, less disease. So I always say we want to make aging graceful. We want to make sure the the morbidity associated with aging is less. It's a big burden. You know, if you talk about trillions of dollars are in this aging age related diseases, can we do something about it?
1: that's such a cool study i mean when i saw that my my mind was blown and i also really liked it because you know it uh, goes back to uh that population in italy that you were talking about i think that's so cool right that a group of individuals who regularly lives over a hundred and it's another data point that shows perhaps the mediterranean diet is the way to go reduction in inflammation all these things kind of tie together right so i i love it love that
2: story Absolutely, don't. That's exactly, you know, the eating healthy habits, they're in a much more better environment compared to, you know, we being in the Bay Area or in California. Is there something we can do to change it? And if we can't, can we regulate this by going through a yearly or every two years, some inflammation, some maybe, uh, you know, approved way of checking the inflammatory markers?
1: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, can't wait to see what goes down next with that particular study. And like you said, you know, the regular checkups and the regular monitoring of inflammation, I think is really, really critical. So I wanted to kind of shift a little bit from your, Inflammation studies. I mean, still focused on the cardiovascular side of things, but really dive a little bit deeper into something that all three of us are actually kind of experts in, you guys more than me, definitely, which is the endothelial cell, really the foundation for the vasculature and everything, right? And specifically, kind of the power of your favorite cell type, in my opinion, the IPS derived endothelial cell, to actually serve as a a model. It's not a perfect model, and you can be the the first person to, to. to mention that and i agree with you it's not perfect uh but you've actually had a couple of really awesome protocols that you've made for actually making vascular ecs i actually use them in my own new lab so thank you for that sure. um but you know they're, they're not perfect uh there have been actually some pretty high profile single cell rna sequencing papers recently that have shown there's a gigantic variety of endothelial cells that are out there that are found in the body it's like no two types of ecs are close closely related, they're, they're very different, right? So when it comes to actually modeling endothelial dysfunction, kind of, you know, some of the stuff that we talked about, using these broadly immature, broadly vascular IPS-derived endothelial cells, how close can we actually get if we want to study like cardio-oncology, for example? And really, what can we do to make these IPS-derived ECs even better?
2: So the, this is, again, a great question, Arun. I mean, this is something we struggle about in in, in the lab, right? What is a good surrogate for the vasculature and specifically endothelial cells? I mean, uh, I'll take a step back to just say, you know, endothelial cells are highly dynamic. They're extremely sensitive, the best mechanosensors we got in the body. Think about uh, any, any flow change in your body, blood, maybe a small jog. Or maybe an anxiety oh my r01 didn't get funded for example could alter your <laughs> vasculature altering your heartbeat right so they're the best cells to detect any changes and it's extremely and the dynamic they can repair themselves it's not that you know once we got it for life uh of course you know the the reparative or the replicative rate is slower in the body it needs more time but what is the question is what is the best surrogate i mean we have struggled for years by using you know, animal models. We have used cell lines. I mean, they have been amazing. I mean, le- let me say that. They have allowed us to get where we have got, but the, the introduction of IPSC allowed us to make it more patient-specific, where I don't need to rely on our cell line to uh, model endothelial dysfunction or it's crosstalk with the other cell type. Now, is it perfect? Absolutely not. I mean, that would be, uh, you know uh you know it, it's it's a lie that it's perfect because it's not i mean we are using an artificial system where we are turning back the clock from ipsc's to make endothelial cells uh they are immature absolutely they're immature uh you know uh, the replicative capacity is sort of an artificial system we're putting it in a dish we don't know we are we're kind of speeding up the process of it to divide and replicate in the body it says it's a much more slower system because there's a complexities of other tissues coming along the blood itself which has got so many of the immune cells which are I- interacting with the endothelial cells but you know the question you asked is that how how can we make it a better system now you know uh, endothelial cells are unique you know your endothelial cells in the brain are going to be different than the endothelial cells which are in our liver or in the kidney and Endoth- there are about 160 plus different kinds of endothelial cells which are unique for each other, I mean, having different functions. And the the more technology we pump in, such as single cell uh, RNA sequencing, which has allowed us to look at different form, the more refined or better system we can have of making iPSC-derived endothelial cells. I still believe iPSC-derived ECs are the best models compared to the primary cells because it allows us to look into the patient's own formed endothelial cells. They will be mature, but as I said, we have now progressed so much that we are able to make a little more mature endothelial cells shown by single-cell RNA-seq or phenotyping them, but also at a much faster way, we can now make endothelial cells with the weak, which are represented of that patient and functional. Uh, the, I think the protocols are going to still keep evolving as we go through. IPSC still will remain a good platform. I just think about what the next step is. I mean, we're talking about population genetics and population studies, right? Now, I can study using these IPSCs hundreds of lines in one city. If I can do that, I can run EQTL studies, uh, variant studies, I can do population genetics in one city. Now, the question is how can I make these cells faster so that I can replicate and say, hey, patient number. 410 is having this SNP compared to patient number 300. Now, I cannot do that on uh, live cells or cell lines. I can do that in IPSC level because I can not only look at their differentiation capacity, some cells take longer time, but also at the same time to drug testing within that cell. So, uh, you know, as I said, protocols will keep evolving. We have a much better handle as we learn more from single cell technologies, from uh, crispr cas9 figuring out validation which key factors are responsible for the differentiation i think we'll have a much better handle on the the protocol
0: yeah you i i like what you're saying about the evolution of the protocols cuz now as i'm thinking about it like unlike many other tissues where the endpoint was i guess more defined like you know you're looking for a pancreatic beta cell and the phenotype is like it's it's discrete um, in the liver and everywhere essentially the 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 population the endpoint has been well defined whereas endothelial cells as you described there's 106 different types right and we almost didn't know that or we didn't know that until what five minutes ago right so when you talk about endpoints we're all differentiating in space and no one really knows what we're going for but it's ironic because you always get endothelium right there's always endothelium in every diff but you have no idea what's there and i've been through the ringer i mean i like you have been down many paths with the ECs in my postdoc and as an early independent investigator, and we did cytokines, we did the small molecules, we did uh, trans differentiation like you, direct reprogramming using transcription factors. We made all the different endothelial cells, not all, but some, you know, we made some liver specific endothelium, we made some cardiac endothelium, hemogenic endothelium. it's Shaheen now, Shaheen Rafi, oh. my uh, postdoc mentor. Yeah, I don't know if you know, he's got this ETV2 master. Oh, absolutely. Yes, the master endothelial cell, which <laughs> we can we could laugh about that maybe after the show, not to mock it. It's amazing stuff. But to hear Shaheen, this is like straight out of God's veins. Um, but, you know, the elephant in the room is that despite the amazing ancillary biology uh, that is endothelium and vascular biology there, it's so rich but it's about vessels, right? And vessels are about tissue and scale. And we've come right. so far in understand, understanding the biology and the diversity of endothelium. It kind of makes me nostalgic for my early training where we were excited doing ischemic hind limb, you know, and it was, it was cutting edge because we were creating vessels. Uh, it makes me think that maybe have we, have we stalled a bit on the vascular engineering side of things for the, you know, in order to to progress so far in our understanding of the molecular biology? Prove me wrong on that point
2: or… Oh, no, Uh, Dylan, I mean, that's a million-dollar question you put up. Have we stalled on the engineering part? Because the main function of the endothelium is to transmit its information to the other cell type. As I said, it's a good mechanotransducer, but also it is an amazing crosstalk person. It is cross-talking with the smooth muscle cells, cardiomyocyte, liver cells. So, I mean, what, Dailin, you said is absolutely true because we dived so much into figuring out what kind of endothelial cells we can get, what is the biology we lacked on the engineering part. And on that note, I mean, some of the work which we are doing is to figure that out, is what is the crosstalk between endothelial cells and smooth muscle cells or the cardiomyocyte and we have dived into figuring out can we make something called as engineered vascular tissue i mean you have heard about engineering heart tissue so much work has been done but we have ignored the vascular tissue in this part and can we use these engineering tools to kind of make a conduit can we make endothelial cells inside and smooth muscle cell outside and actually do a flow study because that will provide an amazing platform in a dish in vitro to study what is going on in vivo. See I go with this uh, philosophy that the vasculature is the plumbing in the body and for the heart could be the sink and if you have a leaky sink you got to go better fix the plumbing so we better figure out how we can fix the plumbing if there is a problem because you know all of most of these cardiovascular disease has a big vascular component which has been ignored and I think bioengineering will be a key moving forward to kind of understand what is the role of the endothelium with smooth muscles or cardiomyocytes or even neurons. I mean, we have a project where we have neuronal cells and the vasculature put together in context to the aging part to see you know, what the endothelium is contributing infl- inflammation-wise to the neurons. We could do that because of iPSCs. But we need to figure out how we can put these two together using bioengineering tools so i think that's a, that's something that we all should put in effort to come up with these tools
1: absolutely and i think it's perhaps one of the holy grails of tissue engineering and bioengineering is getting you know functional vasculature in a dish right it's not easy because in part because this system is so intricate and the vascular is so intricate and it has multiple cell types and all that, but you know, it's a goal worth striving for. And like you said, IPSCs, we're all fans of IPSCs here on the show. It's kind of the workhorse of your work and it's the workhorse of my work as well. And our mentor, Joe Wu would definitely say one of the great hopes for using IPSCs to actually conduct quote-unquote clinical trials in a dish. And this is something that you're quite familiar with where you might be able to predict in like say a a preclinical setting, which drugs would be effective in a patient but also which drugs would be toxic and potentially cause things like off-target cardiotoxicity. We were talking about cardio-oncology, right? right. And indeed, you actually had this really nice science translational medicine paper that conducted a clinical trial in a dish with IPSC-derived ECs, like what we're talking about, and actually showed that a particular statin, lobostatin, which is you know one of the broad class of these cholesterol-regulating statins, it can actually improve EC dysfunction and cellular crosstalk in a particular cardiomyopathy. Bit cardiomyopathy. That's uh, defined by mutation in the laminin A L, or A gene. So, you know, take us through the work, you know, talk us a little bit about this idea of conducting clinical trials in a dish and how close we are to making this a reality. And what are you hoping to do in the the future with some of these other, other IPS clinical trials in a dish down the road?
2: Right. Uh, again, thanks, Aaron, for bringing that up. I think uh, we do need to come up with these uh, unique platforms use you know leverage them to come up with these clinical trial at addition uh, specifically for this project, what we did is we said, okay, we have uh, we have a family who has cardiolaminopathy, which is because of the mutation of the lamin gene. We know it affects the cardiomyocytes. But if we look at a broad rate, lamin gene is so important for every component of the body it's present in every cell type. That led us to think that you know let's look beyond the box for these patients. They have cardiomyopathy, they have cardiac dysfunction, cardiomyocyte dysfunction, but let's look at the other clinical features that they get. You know, we always think about when do these patients start developing a phenotype? When they hit about 45, 50 years of age, but what before that? I mean, they have the mutation. Well, why no cardiac dysfunction or any clinical implications till they hit a certain age? And that led us to think, is there any component which we are missing which might start much, much earlier? So one of the things to think about was vasculature. Do they have vascular dysfunction early on in the life, which we don't look at, which could eventually lead to a cardiac dysfunction? So in that study, what we did is we recruited the same patients who have cardiac dysfunction. We made iPSCs, of course, we differentiated them to endothelial cells. We found endothelial dysfunction in it. And that led us to think that, yeah, they also have endothelial dysfunction. So we said, okay, well, let's compare the clinical function of it. They had endothelial dysfunction clinically. And then we said, okay, well, you know, we know they have endothelial dysfunction. Let's figure out what is the target. And, you know, one of the targets is, a, you know, as I said, it's a mechanotransduction, endothelium is a mechanotransducer. And we found KLF2, which is important for mechanotransduction to be the factor which is downregulated. And that led us to think that, okay, well, you know, these patients, have normal blood flow, they have normal heart function even at an early age, but they might have defective mechanotransduction that even though the f- blood flow is normal, the transmission of the signal to from the endothelium to the smooth muscle or the cardiomyocyte might be impaired because KLF2 is down That's where we let the thing, okay, we can run a clinical trial in the dish by using different compounds. We went through a bunch of compounds for KLF2, found statin is the one which we can increase it in a dish. We said we're not going to stop there. We're going to try to recruit the same patients back in the clinic, and we're going to give them low statin for a certain period of time. So you know, I cannot reverse the cardiac cardiomyocyte dysfunction because it's already set in. But is there any way I can improve the vascular function? And that's when we did their endothelial dysfunction measurements before and after statin treatment, and then we said, okay. You know, I want to do something for the younger generation where the cardiomyocyte dysfunction hasn't set in. They might have endothelial dysfunction when they are 15 years old, which they don't know about. Again, on the part of chronic inflammation, which we don't know about. And is there any way I can improve their vasculature function at an early age? So, hoping when they hit that certain 50 age group, I can delay the onset of cardiac dysfunction. So again, you know the thing is, if I can fix the plumbing at an early time point, maybe the kitchen sink, which is the heart, might have a you know, I can't predict it this way, but I can maybe, or this function say, I can delay the onset of that cardiac dysfunction and give them a, a much better quality of life, you know, less chances of heart transplant if I can improve the vasculature. So you know the idea is, what do we do next? is there any way we can scale this up from the two patients which we use in our clinical trial to a bunch of patients? Now, again, our favorite cell type is iPSCs because we can do that based on the patients we recruit. The idea is we want to recruit another 50 laminopathy patients. We want to make iPSC-derived endothelial cells, and now this time, study what the endothelium does to the cardiomyocyte as we progress in age. So remember, lamin gene is also sort of related to aging. Lamin gene can also cause something called as progeria, which is an aging disease. So is there any way we can bring the vasculature with the mutation and see whether as we progress, what are the implications of the cardiac dysfunction? What does it do to the cardiomyocyte which we can prevent as we? So IPSC gives us this, I always say it's like back to the future because we can go back in the past to make these IPSCs, these are naive cells, but then push it towards the future by aging them in a dish. Of course, it's not perfect, but at least gives us a snapshot within a small period of time to not only go in the past, but can go in the future. So that's the idea. We want to kind of extend it to a much bigger cohort of patients, sort of run a little bit of a population genetics to see what are the implications and how we can understand the role of the endothelium in cardiomyopathy, which has largely been ex, you know, kind of avoided. People, you know, we are very myopic as cardiologists. We think about cardiomyocytes, forgetting the endothelium, uh, the fibroblasts, which are equally important in the heart.
0: Yeah, man, back to the future is, is what I'm feeling right now, although I'm like back to the future too where he's got the flying car. You know, yeah. super tech here is, it's blowing my mind. And I mean, it's just really a reflection for me of how exciting it is to be in the field, uh, in any field related to stem cells. 20 years ago, we were all buying in for this, you know, regenerative medicine, which is still so exciting, but I wouldn't have uh, projected or predicted that. There's all these other ways, you know, the two stories that you're telling me, although the first one, maybe not strictly speaking a stem cell story, Uh, the one, the eye aging and this, the science translational story, it just shows how uh, unexpected ways that um, these approaches can affect real patient lives. And that's what's so exciting, right? Is that now it was all in the lab and now we're talking about real patients. You're recruiting all these patients. You're talking about planning trials and you're not alone. It's a really exciting time for us all, but particularly I would say for you, you know, you're on the front end as as Arun mentioned there, a, a front end of a nice bolus of funding, right? And you're also on the tail end of the pandemic. I just got over COVID, and I'm out in the club, Nazish, so (laughs) I'm not alone. I'm sure everyone is is thinking about the next big ideas, and you've got a real nice table of expertise, right? You're doing all these different things, and as I said, there's this long COVID question that's looming with a lot of research funding there, a lot of questions, not to mention cardiovascular disease being the number one killer. I mean, there's that in the backdrop. Um, It means there's a lot out there for you, Uh, and it's safe to say you can do whatever you want you're crushing right now and this is why i'm buttering you up here because i've got a, a tough question because i'm I'm kind of pigeonholing you you fit a phenotype okay which is a west coast cardiac es kind of rock star uh either in the making or already established and there have been some big academic names of that type i mean i point towards todd mcdevitt chuck murray Perfect. that are taking a kind of industry move, moving uh, to have their primary position in industry as someone who could do that if they wanted. Can you speculate on what the, the draw, what's driving the move of some of, you know, the pinnacle academic scientists into industry? Can you talk a bit about that?
2: So, yeah, you know, we do see a lot of these, uh, you know, people who have looked up, they've done some phenomenal work. I mean, you spoke about Dr. Murray, Chuck Murray is the... I think one of the big driving factor getting out of academics towards uh, uh, industry is I think funding, and I, I'll, I'll say it this way, not funding in per se of uh, not having NIH grants. Funding is key, but I think funding driving this innovation in a much faster way. Industry provides that platform to drive your idea in a much, much faster focused way. I mean. You know, being a new lab has just been a year for me. I can now see what, uh, you know, what you have to go through being a PI, going through all the, you know, paperwork, which is important, which is important. But I think that is where, you know, a lot of these scientists who have spent years and years in academia, you know, building up these hypotheses and questions, want to now drive it towards seeing uh, something done in the clinic. You know my mentor Dr. Wu always says that we want to do science which we can translate into the clinic. otherwise we are doing absolutely good work, but we want to see the outcome by helping one patient. and I, I'm going to quote him uh, and I, I take that as as advice he wants he is willing to give up his papers if he can change one patient's life by the work he has done. and i I sincerely believe that's a way to go. And I feel a lot of these scientists are thinking that, that now we should really try to see if we can translate that industry provides that unique platform to push this funding based innovation much quicker, mm-hmm. you know, uh, much faster, being at the Bay Area, you know, you see a lot of the the infrastructure already there. I think, you know, I'm uh, not just the Bay Area, I mean, you go across the coast of California, even in Boston, I think you find Seattle, you, you mentioned all of these places, provide the infrastructure, the platform to kind of push through and you know use different technologies like AI. I mean, I know Google has funded so much work now where they're using AI based uh, 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 technology for aging. I, I mean they have mm. they have such a so I feel this is what is leading for the people to think about uh, moving towards industry, but uh, you know again, we start in academics because that's what our bread and butter is. All of these ideas come because we have such an enriched environment, I can only tell you daily. I mean, Stanford provides that I don't can second that for that Stanford is such an enriched environment within a small. square foot I have the hospital right next to me to the single cell facility to the proteomics I mean this is uniquely placed. To get your questions answered, I mean we are looking at these questions to be answered, but industry provides that impetus this provides that. That force behind to move it much faster. Mm. That's my two cents in it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. Ed. And like like you said, Stanford is such a unique place where you have all these power of this power on the clinical side, on the research side, and also specifically on the ability to actually make some of these industry industry dreams happen and make some of these startups happen. I mean, it's a, entrepreneurship is such a vibe. At on that campus. It's infectious, really. But like you're saying, I mean, a lot of this has to come back to the patients. And this is part of the reason why a lot of us got involved in this field is to to see if we can help patients in some way, whether it's making basic science discoveries or actually working in an industry when working on a product that may be able to come to a patient eventually. And I think you of all people has have, have a like a really unique perspective on this and the, in particular, the needs of the patient and the hopes and dreams that patients have, right? You actually are a cancer survivor yourself. And when you were previously working at the Houston, Houston Methodist Hospital in Texas, you actually diagnosed with a pretty high grade muscle invasive bladder cancer, right? And so you had to go through all these rounds of chemo with actually some of the drugs that you're studying and that we've talked about here today and read about in your own research career, right? I can't imagine kind of what that was like for you, for you and your family. And the fact that you've been able to actually beat cancer and still have an exceptionally successful early career, it's like inspirational is an understatement aziz it's it's unbelievable so i mean tell us about this defining time in your life you know when you were when you were being treated for cancer and who you leaned on as your sources of strength and actually how this ordeal kind of ended up shaping you as a scientist and as a person today
2: so thanks adun for bringing that up yes uh, indeed you know uh, i you know I, I there's a small kind of story we wrote that I've been, I'm a doctor, I'm a scientist, but I've been a patient as well. And it's pretty surreal. I mean, it's I just hard to explain it, what you have to go through when you become a patient. I mean, being a doctor, I always thought, you know, I've seen patients and that caring level of what, but being a patient now, being on the other side of the coin, it is pretty surreal. It is actually scary where you think about that, what a cancer can do it. So, you know, you know the ordeal was that yes we did go through several rounds of chemo uh, surgery uh, but you know as a scientist i always thought that you know what can i do to change it around right uh, yes i was given doxorubicin and several chemotherapy but how can i i have this platform of research i have this amazing opportunity why can't i pivot my research to kind of make it personal and say uh, what can i do in the field where i have been treated with the chemotherapy i have st- suffered from vascular dysfunction because of the chemotherapy how can i pivot this to make it advantages for the field and this is what led me to think that you know i'm a vascular biologist but i need to pivot my research to see what are the effects of these chemotherapy which i personally have endured uh, it is it is pretty surreal to go through the chemotherapy, especially Dr. Rubin said it's called the red devil. And if you see being infused that red drug going through those IV line, your skin turning red, your you know, clothes turning red, let me more inclined that I got to do something about it because it's personal. now. So can I investigate in my microcosm what I can? I mean, there is no way, This is a concerted effort. We need all to pull through. But is there any way I have this platform to do research? Can I pivot a little bit and do something towards it? And this led me to kind of join Dr. Wu's lab as an instructor to see I want to do something about cardio-oncology. I'm meeting you around where you were working on tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And I'm like, this is something that I really want to work on because I'm this is personal. I want to extend this beyond. And you know, one story led to the other, You know, your science translational medicine from TKI uh, on the cardiac, and now we have extended it towards the entire thing to the vasculature, build a whole network in cardio-oncology here, of course, with the help of my mentor, Dr. Wu, who has published so much uh, in this field. So that's the story which led to one to the other. Uh, I just feel that if I have the platform given, if I can do something about what I have endured, thinking about the millions of patients who go through this chemotherapy-induced dysfunction, I should do something about it. And I need to do this research. I cannot do you know, beyond this, but I can do research. So I can, I'll definitely do something to understand why chemotherapy leads to cardiovascular dysfunction.
0: Yeah, Aziz, I mean, I have to say, it's not just it's a motivator, right? You get cancer, you get interested in cancer, but it's, it's also an inspiration to to all of us other scientists, you know, because it's, it's hard to envision yourself as a patient, you know, of course, you know, that until it happened to you. But seeing someone like yourself as a scientist and seeing how they turn it around to kind of, you know, beat the cancer, so to speak, or at least to turn to turn turn the fight on their own cancer. It is really an inspiration. So thanks for being you and thanks for sharing that story. That's really great. And thanks for everything that you told us. This has been really a a fascinating episode and your journey as a scientist, patient and human being, but we're not done with you yet. We got a couple of science peripheral questions before we let you go. First one of those is uh, what is one hobby that you've always wanted to pursue, but were never able to?
2: Yes, one, uh, you know, I had this, One dream I always wanted to do was to climb Mount Everest. You know, uh, I wanted to be a a mountain climber. I wanted to do, uh, you know, hike into these big peaks. Uh, And I'll share a story about this. You know, uh, when I was in grad school, I started actually training, uh, younger days, you know, you think you could do everything. I started training to climb, you know, You need a a rigorous training for years I actually began training for it started going to rock climbing stuff. And I started training about I want to do this in a year's time and I, this is one of the things which hobby I had it since I was a kid never pursued it, you know med school all of that. And six months into it i'm like you know really trained well with good stamina I realized that the permit to get into mount Everest is $50,000 and. (laughs) i was like as a grad student there is no way on earth i will be able to do this and that's you know one of the dreams uh, reality sets in is that no i don't think i can do this so that's one of the hobbies which i have not been able to pursue much i i still once in a while i'm able to you know climb yosemite or you know but that's one of the things and it's now a dream which i cannot do because you know more responsibilities come in, you know, young anymore like that. So that's one of the one of the hobbies which I couldn't do. I mean, I've taken up other hobbies such as scuba diving. You know, I may I've made it a point that across the world I want to scuba dive. I've done it at the Great Barrier Reef. I've done it in Hawaii. I've done it in on the Kenyan coast. So you take up other hobbies because you couldn't, but that's a that's a hobby I couldn't do.
0: Yes, some of us like go watch a movie. You fill the void of not being able to climb Mount Everest by scuba diving all over the world and beating cancer. I mean, hey, got... some people have smaller aspirations, but you're a hobbyist, my man.
2: So no, my main thing is if I can't go up, can I go down? So that's what I
0: said. Uh, Let me there, you
2: start the scuba there
0: you go. Well, listen, Everest is just a name. Yosemite's pretty badass, if you ask me. Good for you. It
2: is, it is intense. It is intense. Uh,
0: uh, beautiful. Last but not least, uh, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, professional or not?
2: So, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to divide it into two parts as a scientist, right? I'm going to make it into part A and part B. Part A advice was from my former, former mentors, my parents, that, you know, anything that comes out of your mouth needs to be measured well because. An arrow can come back into the bow, but the words which you have said can never be reversed back. So measure what you say. That was one of the advice I've kept it really close to me, especially given from my dad, that you, know, you need to be very careful of what you said. You can hurt someone. The second advice is from my mentor, Dr. Wu, uh, Dr. Joseph Wu, he has said, you know, there's always gonna be background noise. What has kept him and will help you drive is to put your head down and keep working hard. Because that pays in the end, everyone is smart, what keeps the edge, among others, is the working hard, ethical work where you got to keep your head down and keep working. So I keep I these two advice pretty close to myself. And I think that maybe these two things will help me move forward in, you know, I wouldn't say curing uh, diseases, but at least understanding diseases.
0: Well, I think the advice has served you very well, and it's uh, a piece of advice I'll incorporate for myself. I love those. Thanks again, uh, Nazish. This has been really uh, one of my favorite episodes. So good to talk to somebody who has so many different perspectives on the field and willing to share them.
2: Thank you so much, Dalen. Really, really appreciate me coming up here. It was indeed a lot of fun talking to you guys.
0: All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. I promise you guys, the next show we will have a non-majority of Joe Wu acolytes on the show. Okay, I can promise you there will only be one. Um, So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening.